Hey, Kate. Hey, Daniel. Welcome to episode 11 of Hot and Bothered, a podcast on the politics of climate change for the 99%. I'm Daniel Aldana-Cohen, Assistant Professor of Sociology at the University of Pennsylvania. And I'm Kate Aronoff, a writing fellow at In These Times magazine. Now, as always, we're hosted by Descent Magazine. Our episodes and links to articles mentioned in the show are up at descentmagazine.org. We're also on SoundCloud, on Stitcher, and at the iTunes Store. And we always appreciate when our listeners go onto the iTunes Store and give us a great rating. So speaking of ratings, we are just about a month into the Trump regime. and Things have been uh, bad, to say the least. Trump's team seems to have a unique knack for being uh, intersectionally evil and uh, has been pushing forward a slew of horrific policies on Yeah, it really has been. Um, What's gotten maybe the most news has been, of course, Trump's executive order on the Muslim travel ban, which thankfully got stopped by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals last week. It's also been all apocalypse all the time on the climate front. Uh, But I guess the, you know, the silver lining, as we say in all this, has been people showing up to rallies, to their representatives' offices, and also joining organizations, including socialist organizations, you know, generally for the first time. Yeah, the resistance is everywhere, uh, including in, in Melbourne, New Jersey. My mom has started an indivisible chapter, which is really exciting. Uh, and, you know, it's bigger than ever with more ordinary people than ever. So there's some cause for hope. And this week's show is actually going to be about something pretty hopeful, uh, which is some climate work happening right here in New York State. To hear more about that, I'll be speaking in a few minutes with Franchal Hart, who's the executive director of Open Buffalo. What you just heard there was audio recorded on Monday, February 12th. It's budget season in New York State, and members of a coalition called New York Renews are in Albany as we speak now, demanding that New York State's governor, Andrew Cuomo, bring in provisions for climate and energy justice. New Yorker News is a massive coalition of labor, racial justice, environmental, and community groups from around New York State, uh, pushing for something called the New York Climate and Community Protection Act. Yeah, you know, I've been following this effort too. And of course, the kind of normal aspect of this proposal is to cut New York State's uh, greenhouse gas emissions to zero by 2050. So kind of ordinary type of thing, if a bit aggressive, which is great. But what's more unusual and interesting about this proposed act is that it also includes a mandate for massive investment in energy and infrastructure development, specifically in poor and working class communities. The law would also establish labor protections and training programs for a whole slew of green jobs. And that specifically, that aspect of it is a big part of what helped to bring unions like SEIU 32BJ uh, to the table of this coalition. And at that table, too, uh, as we mentioned, are groups from across the state. New York City uh, may feel like the center of the universe at some times, but what that often means is that communities upstate can get left out of big statewide policy pushes that are centered on Albany. Yet one of the cities doing some of the most innovative organizing around the intersection of climate, labor, and racial justice uh, is Buffalo. Now, I just want to point out from, you know, recording here as I am from Philly, that it doesn't always feel to me like New York is the center of the universe, although it feels that they think that they are. But actually, when I grew up in Toronto, Buffalo was considered, you know, pretty cool. Um, People were constantly going there to buy fancy American clothes. We called that cross-border shopping. Very controversial. Uh, People would go there all the time for concerts. 
Uh, I mean, I basically I could just talk about Buffalo and the way we thought about it in Toronto for hours, really. Wow, Daniel, you should you should have a separate podcast about your wild Canadian teenagers, like Degrassi, but without Drake and more anxious. <laughs> yeah, definitely without Drake, because you know I'm so old that when I was in high school, we actually didn't even have uh, texting. No hotlines to bling, as it as it were. Though let it be known that I actually forgot it was bling and not and not ring. Uh, which makes me a huge disappointment to my end of the millennial spectrum. And not to get too subtle, Kate, but possibly that's it's a bit of a self-hating situation there. Anyway, moving on. Uh, so, so getting back to Buffalo, uh, you know, like a lot of rest belt cities, uh, Buffalo has suffered from years of disinvestment and deindustrialization. And that, along with the city's harsh segregation, is what has led several community groups there to develop a model for sustainable and community-centered economic development melding a concern for climate with the need for affordable housing and job creation. Yeah, so, I mean, speaking of New York Renews, uh, you know, in this broader context, if you can come up with a piece of legislation that actually brings labor and racial justice groups together, uh, along with folks from all over the state and green groups, you know, that'd have to be a pretty unique and, and pretty great, you know, piece of organizing. Definitely one of the more optimistic stories on climate in this new age of Trump. And, you know, as the fight at the federal level looks increasingly to be defensive, uh, people are looking to states like New York and California, for example, to be a little more ambitious, uh, both on, on the climate change front, but also in creating things like sanctuary cities and even whole sanctuary states. And what's interesting about New York Renews, too, is that they're trying to leverage New York Governor Cuomo's uh, promise to act as a kind of progressive foil to Trump. You know, here he is speaking in late January reacting to Trump's Muslim ban after thousands of people showed up at JFK airport to protest it. As a New Yorker, I am a Muslim. As a New Yorker, I am Jewish. As a New Yorker, I am black. I am gay. I am disabled. I am a woman seeking to control her health and her choices. Because as a New Yorker, we are one community. To hear more about New Yorker news, Cuomo's position so far, green jobs, and the work happening in Buffalo, I spoke with Franchelle Hart. Franchelle is the executive director of Open Buffalo, part of the New Yorker News Coalition, and one of the driving forces behind just transition work in the city itself as part of the Crossroads Collective there. She worked for years with 1199 SEIU, United Healthcare Workers East, and has served as a board member for the Western New York Area Labor Federation and president of the Coalition of Black Trade Unionists Buffalo chapter. Well, thanks so much for coming on. To start off, maybe if you could just talk about uh, some of the work you do with Open Buffalo and kind of what a vision of, of a just transition looks like. That's something we've talked about a decent amount here on the show, but you know, maybe lay out kind of what, what that looks like for, for Open Buffalo and, and for folks in Buffalo sort of more generally. So I, I think as we, as we look at what's happening around the, the country, that Buffalo is actually ground zero for what a just transition looks like um, because we're, we're right in the midst of it. Um, you know, dating back to, let, let's say 10 years ago, there was a mass exodus out of the city for for decades. Um, folks moving to um, the first and second ring suburbs, moving to Atlanta, North Carolina, the West Coast for job opportunities, 
and the the feel of everybody on the ground was I can't wait to get out of Buffalo. There's no jobs, there's no opportunity. Um, and we were we were feeling this uh, burden of being a former Rust Belt city with an industry based on dirty fossil fuels and steel industry. And so what what happens to the city? What happens to the infrastructure? And what happens mostly? What happens to the workers um, when those industries no longer exist? And there's um, there's been a, a push from our our local leadership to really establish uh, Buffalo as a eds and meds community. And I, I think the, the feel of local people on the ground is that, you know, that that's fine. That's fine. And Buffalo does need a, um, a shot in the arm per se, but how do we ensure that all folks are able to participate in the growth that's happening in the city? And I think that that's how we approach the just transition work that we know that it's necessary to build um, to build a new economy, but not just build a new economy, but build an economy that's, um, that's welcoming to folks from all walks of life and that we're, we're intentionally creating those opportunities for, um, for folks to, to come into the, the workforce. And so right, right now we're, we're ex- uh, I think the latest quote is that there's within the last few years there's been $19 billion of investment in the city of Buffalo. Yet Buffalo still has some of the lowest graduation rates and some of the highest poverty rates in the country. So I think that that's how, that's how we look at the just transition work, that if, if a transition to a new economy happens and it doesn't include everyone, um, we really didn't have a, a transition. And so that's that's the mission of Open Buffalo to make sure that you know all boats rise and that um, everyone has everyone has a place in New Buffalo. Right, and yeah, so much of what came up in the election and what's been talked about since is you know how Trump was able to appeal to kind of rust belt communities where some of the trends you know you talked about are taking place folks are leaving for for jobs uh and and there's this real question of you know what does what does it look like and and there's been these sort of you know development schemes but i'm wondering you know if you could talk about some of the work around around energy that that's happening there and you know what what that looks like in particular especially as you know maybe this isn't the case for buffalo but you know, a, a lot of that, that rhetoric seems directed at places where there has been, you know, forms, other forms of energy in the past. And so, you know, in, in terms of building up sort of new, a new economy and, and one that's, you know, not premised on fossil fuels, uh, what does that look like in Buffalo? So that's a lot in that question. Yes. But, um, kind of taking back to some of the historical context of, of Buffalo, Buffalo has some of the oldest housing stock in the country. Mm-hmm. And so why that is important in 2017 is that these houses were built uh, prior to the invention of insulation mm-hmm. and what that means for uh, a community that hasn't had an increases, it hasn't had an increase in wages and benefits that the, the burden of high energy bills falls on working class and poor communities. Buffalo, as you could imagine, um, with, with our winters and lack of insulation in our homes has some of the highest energy bills in in the country. And so what does what does that mean? It means that while on average 
um, or working class uh, person shouldn't spend more than 30% of their um, their income on housing, and that's inclusive of gas and energy costs. Um, there are some folks in Buffalo that are paying upwards of um, 70% of their income on housing and energy here in in Buffalo, and so that that means uh, we also have some of the highest asthma rates in in the country. So it's just really um, a domino effect on the quality of life of folks here, you know. Because I, I think when we start to talk about energy policy, um, especially grassroots leaders and just everyday working people, you know, their eyes start to glaze over because there's a disconnect with how energy policy impacts our everyday life. But we're feeling the impacts of it every single day. And so I think that that's just, um, for, for Buffalo, that's a, that's a glaring example. So, you know, when we, when we talk about the, the hurt that folks are feeling in the community, I, I completely get it. And so sometimes there's a disenchantment with Albany and DC because um, despite the economy turning around, we're still paying 70% of our incomes on housing and energy. So we're not feeling these this positive um, renaissance that's happening on a, even on a city and um, national level, we're, we're not feeling it. So that's, um, I think the, um, so much of Buffalo's work revolves around um, housing policies. And as we're seeing this um, rebirth of um, opportunity here in Buffalo, the scarcity in housing and gentrification and how all that plays into um, energy, energy policy as well. So what, what really excites me about New York Renews is that we're, uh, we're changing the conversation. And, you know, we're, we're talking about um, $5 billion for just energy policies and a 40% set aside for low-income communities. Like, that's not... That's not tech change. You know, mm-hmm. we can talk about true, uh, really changing the game for folks on um, on the ground. And so it's just, for, for me, it's just a matter of how big we can dream. Like, I, I think the concept of collective ownership of solar in communities and the solar divide. So are we only talking about solar being, solar panels being available for folks in the suburbs? Um, or are we creating new and innovative systems so that renters can also um, participate in um, solar ownership as, as well? So I, I think that the the focus um, of setting aside uh, funding for frontline communities, those especially here in Western New York, the the folks that are suffering from asthma, the and also the impact of lead in in the the ground and in our homes and how all of these folks that are bearing the burden of inequitable energy policies for for decades how they can participate in this new system that we're um, that we're developing and so that's um that's our role at open buffalo is to uh, is to prepare the community for that conversation to make the link between complex um, energy policies and how it impacts um, the, the lives of folks every single day. You know, I think when so many people in the community are being impacted by gun violence, police brutality, um, not being able to keep the the lights on or making choices between if they're going to buy groceries 
climate justice and energy policy become distant second for for everyone, especially here in Buffalo, because when we start to talk about energy and um, global warming, we're like, hey, in Buffalo, that means that maybe we won't have snow. And so as we as, we, as I look out my window right now, there isn't any snow on on the ground. And so, you know, for a lot of people, it's like, oh, global warming might not be that big, that big of a thing. So just um, reaffirming that, you know, we're actually two degrees away from the tipping point. And once the earth and our world climate reaches those that tipping point, there's no turning back from that. But being in a position to, again, make those links between um, energy policy, um, climate justice, and what's happening on the ground, that's how we approach the work. Right. And there is this on, on the national level, and, and, you know, this seems to feed down into state policy, too. There's this opposition set up between, you know, jobs as being this kind of immediate uh, concern, and then the environment as being this kind of abstract thing that policymakers in Washington care about or in Albany. And it seems like part of what gets left out of that conversation is, you know, what those jobs actually look like. And and there's sort of an abstract conversation, too, around around green jobs and, and this idea that, you know, there'll be better jobs building solar panels or installing solar panels or uh, putting up wind turbines. But you know, part of the conversation seems to actually leave out, you know, what do those jobs actually look like and, and, and mm-hmm. how, do, how do folks actually make a living? Uh, because, you know, part of what seems sort of attractive about some of these jobs in extractive industries is that many of them are unionized. Many of them, you know, are, are, are decent. It's decent paying work. And so, you know, it, there, there are, you know, various sort of programs in, in Buffalo um, that have been set up. So I'm wondering if you could talk, you know, what do those jobs look like? What does a, a good sort of green job entail for you? And, uh, you know, also, how do you kind of communicate that out? Well, I think that that's, that's still a conversation yet to be, yet to be had in a, in a meaningful way on, on a state level. So I would, I would definitely be interested in um, sitting down at the table and really helping to figure that out. Um, but I, I, think it's, I think it's important for us to um, realize that we're in, in an extractive economy we're dealing with finite resources. And I think that that point gets glazed over that um, these resources, the, the coal industry, like we, we cannot continue, not just because of the um, destructive um, impact that it's having on our environment, but that it's not sustainable. So we're, we're at a place where we, there's no choice but to transition into something else. And so I think the, the question isn't, um, are we going to stay in an extractive economy or are we going to start to look at more um, renewable resources? The the question is, what do we consider renewable? Because we know that that transition has to happen. So um, when, we're, when we're looking at, um, let's say, National Grid and National Grid's um, desire to expand fracking capacity. Um, and some people are saying, well, you know, um, that's still cleaner than coal that's still cleaner than these these other mechanisms but when we have when we have options to build up truly renewable resources i think um and from our perspective that's where we need to concentrate um our our efforts and really looking at true renewable energy like like wind and solar and not not giving up the, the fight in that um so what what do those um what do those jobs look like it's our hope that they'll be that they'll be unionized mm-hmm. jobs, 
and that we're we're fighting for the the highest wage and benefit practices possible in in those jobs. But in addition to that, um, if it's just the same folks that are being hired on the site, like as we look around Buffalo right now, you know, there's you can't you can't walk down the street without seeing a new building popping up right now. But we're constantly seeing the same folks on these construction sites. And you, you don't, these construction sites aren't very diverse, you know, and so how, how do we put pressure on the developers to make sure that they're hiring from the communities that they're actually building on or building for, let's say. Um, and so I think that that's how we start to, um, to shift the, the, the economic landscape here locally when we're talking about um, workforce development. There's out of the Buffalo Billion. There's um, there's a project, the the Northland Corridor project, to take folks. It's it's based right on the east side of Buffalo, and so um, taking the the communities that have the highest poverty rates and providing um, not just workforce development but wraparound service as well, mm-hmm. so that there's an on-site daycare center and things like that. And so to to really dream big and to create bold visions around what, what we want to actually transition to. Um, and then I think that that's, that's where we're at, um, ensuring that um, actually Buffalo right now we're experiencing population growth, mainly because of our immigrant and refugee brothers and sisters that are coming and contributing to, um, to our communities and making them that much stronger. But making sure that um, we actually have language access in these workforce development programs as well. And so I, I guess the my goal would be to make sure that the the right folks are at the table, so that we're we're fighting for again uh, a comprehensive workforce development policy as we start to develop these these new jobs. Something that that kind of stood out to me um, when I was there this summer in Buffalo, you know, there seems to be this really interesting balance of uh, in the work that folks are doing between you know both providing kind of services from organizations, you know, putting up solar panels, kind of erecting these, these houses, um, and, you know, kind of asking for, for the state to, in some ways, provide the investment needed to put forward a, a sort of equitable jobs program. And so I'm wondering if you could talk about that balance just between what the state should be providing, um, you know, and, and at the New York level and, and at the national level, and, you know, this sort of like basic subsistence stuff that that has has kind of fallen um, to community organizations and to community groups. I think um, step one is um, again um, ensuring that frontline communities, um, the the communities that suffer the the greatest, that those folks are at the decision making table as well, mm-hmm. that their voices are heard in this process. So that's that, that's number one, and and two, only Buffalo knows what Buffalo needs. Mm-hmm. You know, we um, we've had um, folks that have dedicated their lives to making Buffalo a, a better place, more equitable, more just for for everyone in this community, um, while others left for um, economic opportunities. We have folks here that stayed and weathered the storm. So again, ensuring that those folks' voices are heard during this process is critically important. So one of making sure that Buffalo, um, the the folks here are 
um, are allowed to create the vision for what Buffalo should should be. And um, again, the the resources that come from from the state, where where do they go? Because um, when we're talking about a five million dollar investment in energy, where is that going to go? Is it going to go to National Grid? Is it going to go to um, high level developers? Is it going to go to Solar City? Or is it going to go to communities? Is it going to go for, to non for profits and other? You know, um, just the the thought of being able to solarize all the schools and uh, the Buffalo public school system and um, ensuring that the Buffalo public schools are all net zeroed out. You know, so how, how, do, how do those things happen? How do we put rainwater um, infrastructure in all of our buildings, all, all of our city and state buildings here locally? These are, these are ideas that have come from the ground up. And so um, allowing that, that process to, to happen so that their, their voices and their ideas are heard is, I think, um, step one. Um, when we talk about um, a participatory um, way to make sure that um, everyone has a, a say in how um, funding is allocated, um, right now Buffalo, this is the second year that we're doing participatory budgeting. Um, so, you know, they, they are truly democratic, not, not literally democratic, but truly democratic ways of ensuring that an investment is hitting the folk that it needs to hit here in Buffalo. You know, people are, are, are talking increasingly as the kind of reality of Trump's administration sets in about how important, you know, cities and states to a certain level will be. So... I'm wondering if you could talk about, you know, what, what sort of lessons folks should be taking from Buffalo and what's happening there, uh, but also, you know, from this broader um, New York Renews Coalition and, and you know, what seems to be this kind of interesting place that, that Cuomo is in now with relation to progressive groups as he's trying to, you know, paint himself as kind of a foil to Trump and maybe increase his own chances of, of, you know, seeking higher office or something in, in 2020. But what can Buffalo kind of offer other cities looking to, to take action at the, at the municipal level and, and New York Renews and, and what's possible at the state level? Lessons learned from Buffalo. Um, I, I think that um, Push Buffalo has, uh, has rightfully so really been a, now a national leader and how um, community control of energy can be done. And so I think it um, now is the time for um, organizations to um, support one another and in, um, in pushing for um, investment into projects like the, the Green Development Zone. So we, we now have a, a small model um, based on the west side of Buffalo that we know works. So how do we how do we position Cuomo? How do we position um, other allies to actually make investments to scale up projects like the Green Development Zone? And so I think that that's that's the type of bold vision that that I hope more communities um, will will start to do. And I know that there's um, there's conversations in you know, a gospel conference call with um, four other communities that are all wrestling like what what does this mean now? I think that everyone is kind of walking around with this, with this anxiety of what's, what's going to happen next week. Mm-hmm. You know, what is, what does this mean for energy? What does this mean for all the efforts that we've gained over the last 20 years? Um, 
but I think that that should um, that should really um, put a new um, vigor within folks on a on a local level because you know all, all politics is local mm-hmm. and so how how do we support people in the communities that are on the front lines um, really support them and pressure our, our folks in Albany and DC to make sure investments not the not the solar city type of investment but investments in in real people in real strategies and real organizations um, so I would uh, I would definitely welcome a conversation on a um, on a statewide level I think Buffalo because of the Buffalo billion and the renaissance that's happening here now more and more communities are paying attention to Buffalo now um, and so that's it would be a, a welcomed a welcome conversation you know to really talk about how we start how we start to support each other too um during the New Yorker news rally this um this summer, Buffalo actually sent the largest delegation um outside of um you know even more so than New York and you know Buffalo mm-hmm. you know no uh, no animosity towards our brothers and sisters in New York, but you know <laughs> always feel like <laughs> the tail and the end of the dog here in in New York, and that you know we never get the the credit that we deserve here in, in Buffalo. So for the first time to really be visible in in a movement based on the work that's been happening here in our community, not only does does it feel good, but it, it's also reassuring that um, communities can band together and resist. And I think that that's a, that's a growing theme. How are we, how are we supporting each other? How are we resisting? Hey, and, and, you know, it's, it's, nice to it's nice to get out of the sort of New York mindset which New York can you know position itself as a sort of center of the world in some ways and you know as <laughs> as these uh I'm, I'm I'm guilty as a as a new 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 Yorker um sometimes right, right. but uh yeah I mean as people are kind of looking toward these these state level strategies and and trying to you know especially in places with more progressive or even just blue governors, um, as opposed to, you know, Mm -hmm. these sort of trifecta red states. What do those conversations look like? I mean, in in New York News, I'm curious, too, uh, in particular, like, folks in in New York City obviously have different interests than, uh, or or priorities, maybe, rather than interests than than folks in in Buffalo or or in other parts of the state. And so, you know, how, how have those conversations gone? If, you know, thinking about other states, I imagine, you know, someone in Northern California has a different set of concerns than someone in LA, for instance. That's a great question. So I think we have some truly great folks at the table with New York Renews and that we've we've learned from our mistakes in the in the past. Many times you you'll get an email at noon saying, Hey, can you guys sign off on this legislation? Mm. Um we're trying to introduce it on the floor by five PM. Wow. And you're like, Wait, what? Yeah, yeah, we need a co sponsor. You know, and so um Many times that's how upstate communities, upstate uh, communities are brought into the legislative uh, priorities um, that are based in, in New York City. But with New York Renews, um, there's, there's truly inclusive conversations that, um, that have been happening over the last, really last year and a half to ensure that the priorities of all communities and all people are really brought into the, the conversation. 
So we weren't presented with a signed, sealed, delivered um, strategy or um, legislative uh, platform, but that we all have an opportunity to really voice what are the priorities of upstate versus downstate. And so um, I think just coming into um, the conversation with a mindset of um, being truly inclusive is especially the the political climate that we're in is that much more critical. And I think what we're what we're building um, will be a lasting and enduring structure because the, of the intentionality and in really being inclusive of all folks and ensuring that we're we're hearing the the voices and concerns, especially of people of color, and creating spaces that people of color can really um, lead in mm-hmm. in these spaces. Uh, creating spaces for um, indigenous uh, communities also to to not just have a seat at the at the table, you know, just to raise their hand and say I'm here, but to truly lead and to say what's necessary um, for their communities in order for their communities to thrive. I think that that's one difference with um, with New York Renews. And you know, could you just say a little bit more about what the what the agenda that has come out of that process looks like? I mean, you mentioned that there's uh, you know, 40% set aside for um, investment in folks who are, you know, already feeling the impacts of, of climate and, you know, disinvestment in various ways. What has the result been? I mean, if you want to talk about the the legislation that's being pushed for and, uh, you know, other other sort of projects that are coming down the line. Well, I can, I can speak to one thing that I would like to see um, clarity around, mm-hmm. and um, and that's something that we're we're still consistently um, working to right now. And that's what we talked about a few minutes ago. And that that's really what what do these green jobs look like? Mm-hmm. Because there there really is not a, a blueprint for how how we transition an entire state to renewable energy. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think that it's it's again it's. Um, getting the the right folks to to the table to have their voices heard, um, and ensuring that um, we're we're also allowing our union brothers and sisters to be able to come um, and and again offer offer expertise on how um, how a, a new economy can can be created that's that's sustainable, and so I think that that's that's still the the biggest the biggest piece. And you know, um, not just on a on a local level, but a state level too. Um, we do have labor allies at the table that are offering expertise on how to really how to really flesh that out. And so, I think that that's one of the the more um, exciting pieces, especially here on a on a local level when um, when we're trying to rebuild a rust belt economy. So the the promise of building up an completely new infrastructure and economic system um, can truly transform and, if done right, eradicate most of the poverty that's that's here in the city. The Mm -hmm. resources are there, the expertise are there. So um, it's just putting those two um, entities together um, to create the blueprint. So that's that's my interest, that's Open Buffalo's interest, and I, I think that we'll get there. With the constant communication of communities all across New York State, I, I think that we we will get there, and we'll have a final policy platform that we can all be very proud of. Yeah, and we and we we talked a bit about kind of these regional 
regional differences, which are, are being sort of meted out in, in New York or news, sounds like in a really positive way. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's also, you know, these institutional differences, too, and something that seems so kind of impressive just looking at the roster of groups that are involved with New Yorker News is that there are unions on there who had not not supported the People's Climate March and, and you know, had stayed out of sort of that conversation that are that are now, you know, coming to support some some sort of very progressive legislation and, and really progressive climate legislation. Um, it seems right, like right. wouldn't have been possible, um, you know, even a couple of years ago. So, you know, I'm wondering if you could speak to to that sort of specifically and and how you've kind of seen the conversation on labor change, um, you know, about um, about green jobs and and how these unions are kind of coming to the table now and and what's sort of driving that. It's a um, difficult and messy and complicated conversation. Mm -hmm. Um, I've heard, and I know that's not, this isn't what you're saying, but I've, I've heard a lot of folks say that we're finally convincing laborers that there's a climate justice issue. And I don't I don't think that that was ever the the case. Mm-hmm. You know, um not in not in 2016-2017 um do we still need to convince people that climate change are climate change is real. Mm-hmm. You know, they they know that um but it's how how much can um I advocate for something when I don't see clarity in it? And so I think, again, that's why really clarifying the, the jobs piece. What does that, what does the job piece look like? Who's, who's working on their sites? Um, what's the education level? You know, when we're talking about a just transition, if we're taking someone that's been making $90,000 um, for the last 15 years, and now we're saying, well, an entry-level um, green job would be Mm $50,000 and you actually need a associate's degree in order to qualify for that job. Mm -hmm. Is that really a transition? So it, um, it really is up to our, our union leaders to protect their workforce. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I think that that's, um, again, it's a messy and complicated conversation, but um, that, that is their priority to ensure that their workers are working um, and so I think just um, understanding that and lifting that up in in the space that we recognize that we want everyone to work and we're not just talking about bringing in um, high level, highly skilled folks from other community. Mm-hmm. Our priority is to keep the folks here working and also increase the, the, the pool of people that are working. So that, that's been a conversation that's, that's been happening, not just here in Buffalo, but all across the state. It seems like, you know, there, there's this incredulity I've heard among, among you know, folks who come out of a, a more kind of traditional mainstream climate background that, you know, there are these, you know, solar jobs are uh, so plentiful, wind jobs are so plentiful. And, you know, why wouldn't someone just like switch their, switch from working in an extractive industry or, or work, you know, working in, a, in, a, in another polluting industry? Um, and, you know, when I, I've talked to, workers in this industry and say they're worse jobs, you know, <laughs> the, the, it, it pays mm. them better to build a pipeline than it does to build a wind turbine. And, uh, it's, right, right. and that job's union, whereas another one might not be. Um, and so, you know, on that, on that kind of bent, one of the, one of the companies that, that, you know, you've mentioned a couple of times, um, comes up in, in this conversation is solar city, uh, and, you know, is, is one of the sort of biggest solar producers and, is, is kind of painted as, as, as being a sort of progressive company by, by virtue of sort of doing solar. 
but so much of that conversation about renewables is dominated by by these private companies and you know as you know working in labor is is that you know a private company is a, is a private company and they they don't protect their workers necessarily unless they're they're told to uh, by workers. And so, you know, you've mentioned the Buffalo Billion a couple of times. So I'm wondering if you could talk, you know, first about the Buffalo Billion and then um, about the Solar City project and uh, this, this factory that's going to be built and, you know, what, what kind of input or uh, it sounds like potentially a lack of input has been from folks in Buffalo who have actually been engaged in this conversation about renewables and, and engaged in this work for, for some time. So I come from the the background of thinking about um, taxpayer dollars mm-hmm. as um, as the people's investment, mm-hmm. and so um, the the same way um, that you know many times investments aren't made on Wall Street without without the the actual investor knowing um, what's what's the risk, mm-hmm. what's um, what's my level of potential return, and how do I ensure that my money's protected. And so I um, I think that we should be having those same conversations around our taxpayer dollars and that if it's public money going into a private project, how are we, one, how are we ensuring that they're, they're hiring from frontline communities, the surrounding zip codes, right, right around there? How, how are we ensuring that um, the public gets to work? Those questions still haven't, haven't truly been, been asked. Um, these are all important conversations, not just when it's public money, but anytime a project is happening, but especially when it's when it's public money. So these are still questions, you know, just actually getting the job. And then um, once you, once you get the job and you have the opportunity to join a union to to ensure that um, the the union is a is a welcome force within that institution, and that um, union leaders and the workers are able to sit at the decision-making table with management to talk about, again, workplace safety. How are we ensuring that these are quality jobs? Um, we don't just want any job here in Buffalo. We want to ensure that um, that we're not just paying minimum wage, but living wages and beyond. Um, and so, again, a lot of these questions are still up in the air. And as we see more and more projects popping up, and not, not just, especially Solar City, because, you know, it was it stayed on the front page of the Buffalo News for so long. But all the other projects that are happening across the city, um, how how are everyday Buffalo residents um, benefiting from this? And that we're we're not just creating a new system so that uh, a new cohort of working poor is able to flourish. More and more workers here are carrying the burdens of two and three jobs. And so how is that fair? How is that just um, for uh, residents here in the city of Buffalo? Um, and looking at the kind of the, the domino effect and how that impacts graduation rates. If mom and dad isn't there to make sure that the kid is doing their homework or even going to school, how does this kid, how does the kid get through school? And so just kind of looking at the cycle of poverty that it created when these institutions pop up without the jobs there. So I, I hope that there will be a, a welcomed conversation on how um, folks on the ground can sit down with, with Solar City and, and really ensure that they are looking at what wraparound services are necessary in order to hire from the, the community and making sure that these are places that people actually want to work. 
Yeah, and, and 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 what I've heard about solar about the factory that's being built, you know, the construction jobs. It, it sounds like the physically building the, the 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 plant are seem to be mostly union. But you know, in terms of who's actually working inside, it seems like this huge open question, which you mentioned, of like whether you know, a those will be workers who like are making a decent wage and and are are protected by union, and, and be like if they're going to be from Buffalo, right? Mm-hmm. It'll be interesting to see what happens there, just based on uh, the fact that they want to build more of these, and and that you know there there do need to be more factories built. It sounds like if you know we're going to scale up renewables at the at the level needed. You know, many times when people question the the practices of companies, the practices of developers, somehow these these leaders in organizations get painted as um, anti-development mm-hmm. when when that really couldn't be further from from the truth mm-hmm. like people from buffalo like there's i don't think there's a city that has more pride than buffalo we're we're really rooting for the city and that you know that buffalo makes a real comeback but mostly we're, we're rooting for the people here and not um highly paid uh developers and private institutions but that the people actually see an increase in quality of life here in in this community. So that's that's our priority. We will continue to question and scrutinize uh, the institutions that don't hold those values. But you know, I, I think that that's our that's our democratic right to question those institutions and to ensure that we're not creating new pipelines for the rich to get richer, but that um, people have pipelines out of poverty. Um, again, kind of going back to this framework of a just transition. You know, a lot of communities are talking about how we um, how we transition out of uh, extractive economy. For many of our communities here in Buffalo, we're we're transitioning out of poverty. So it's a it's a complicated framework, but we're um, we're committed to make sure that it happens. And we we think that the new economy can be built on a more equitable energy policy. The bad news is that after a really great first season of our podcast, Hot and Bothered, we're going to take a bit of a hiatus. Um, don't worry, it's a working hiatus, not a teenage jam band hiatus where we're all just getting into different kinds of drugs and you know never end up actually playing together again. That's right. So the good news is we're going to be using this time to refresh the show, look for more funding, and plan a second season where we'll be coming out twice as often, hopefully, every two weeks instead of once a month. This is an exercise in calling our own shots based largely on an accumulation of data. Yeah, exactly. I mean, basically, this hiatus is to crunch data, uh, lots of data. We have a tremendous data set here. Uh, in fact, we have so much data that it's crashing our servers. Uh, the good news is we were actually able to buy the Clinton campaign's massive data processing algorithm uh, on Craigslist, actually, for like 20 bucks. We picked it up in downtown Brooklyn, and we've already started running it. And apparently, we don't even have to record that special episode uh, anywhere in Wisconsin. So, or Pennsylvania, for what it's worth. Yeah, you know, maybe maybe just a, a quick downtown Pennsylvania, you know, mini episode right at right at the last minute there. Um, so yeah, these are, these are some real time saving innovations here. Um, anyway, wherever you are, uh, subscribe to our podcast, uh, iTunes or Overcast or whatever. Don't unsubscribe. 
because we will be back. And uh, in the meantime, we might even put out a kind of bonus hiatus episode just to remind you that we are, uh, in fact, alive. Anything is possible. This is the age of Trump, after all. And we won't be leaving you hanging for too long. That's exactly right. Um, that said, in the meantime, uh, dear listeners, thank you for sticking with us through season one. Uh, Kate, thanks for all the you know, really constructive feedback on my dad jokes, uh, most of which you, you know, did in fact cut from the show. Uh, Colin for the Foucault jokes, which of course uh, did not make it on air. Colin uh, is our strong but silent producer. So you know, to you, Colin, thanks for making it all happen. And thank you, Daniel, for the dad jokes that I rewrite. And thanks, Colin, for you know, being on my side with that. Uh, yeah, you know, it's always great being one against two. Uh, anyway, so as we creep uh, you know, ever further into the abyss, remember to organize, but also uh, remember to tweet us. Tweet us your thoughts, your feedback, your favorite teenage jam bands, maybe even just your favorite jams, favorite chutneys, marmalades. Uh, and of course, you know, tweet us your favorite moments from season one. And, and tweet us suggestions for episode ideas for season two. Yes, we know that uh, a lot of people want an episode on food, so we'll definitely be doing that. But you know, tweet us other suggestions uh, to hashtag hot bothered climate. Until soon, then, stay hot. And stay bothered. <laughs>